It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. As we promised, I want to get into this whole Twitter Tesla, Elon Musk story. It just, it keeps evolving every day. New news every day. Stocks moving all over the place. Uh, so we said, let's get a couple smart people in here who can help us figure out what's going on. Uh, and Kriti, we did that today. Mandeep Singh, Senior Technology Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. And Dan Ives, Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Dan, you know, I, I kind of, I feel for you and I feel for the shareholders of Tesla because the fundamentals of the company are one thing, and they're pretty darn good when you think about just the growth of the EV business, which you've been so right on for so long, yet the stock comes under tremendous pressure for really some issues outside of the fundamentals, namely Elon Musk and the selling of all the stock. How do you put that in context for your clients? Yeah, I mean, look, a big part of Tesla and the run is Musk. Musk is the hearts and lungs of the Tesla story he part of the brand, and ultimately, he's essentially using Tesla like his own ATM machine to buy Twitter and ultimately continue to fund that situation. It's been a black cloud over Tesla stock, and the, the, the fiascos we continue to see on Twitter, that creates brand destruction for Musk and therefore for Tesla, and that's why I think we continue to be just in this very, very frustrating spider web that, and it speaks to, I think, 75, 80% of the sell-off in Tesla is must-driven. Hey, Dan, that goes to the question I, I've been asking myself, at least. I look on the Bloomberg terminal, and I look at the board makeup of Tesla, and I see a couple of Musk names there, and I don't know how independent the others are, Mr. Murdoch, for example. Uh, but I've, there is an independent board of directors, presumably. There are large in institutional shareholders. Are it, Can anybody rein in Elon Musk from the Tesla perspective? I mean, look, in theory, they could technically, but realistically not, right? And I think that's part of the issue here is that, you know, Musk listens to one person, it's the person in the mirror. <laughs> and ultimately, he's just doubled down because ultimately, the way he is, the more that he gets criticized in terms of what he's doing, he just actually just dives further into the deep end of the pool. And that's what we've seen in terms of playing out in this Twitter situation, as well as with Tesla in terms of, selling the stock. And that's why the problem from an investor perspective is that even though it's non-fundamental, it's also a lot of his attention, seemingly all of it right now is focused on Twitter instead of the golden child and 90% plus of his wealth, which is Tesla. And that's why 
he lost that crown, richest person in the world, because of what's happened to Tesla stock. $650 billion of market cap wiped out. Mandeep, hop on in here and talk to us a little bit about the valuation side of things for Twitter. Now, I will say it was a lot easier to do this when Twitter was still public. <laughs> you could see exactly what the stock uh, was trading at. You could see exactly uh, what the financials were at. But now that it's private, Mandeep, is there a sense of just how much Twitter is worth or what we would even need to find that out? Yes, if it was publicly traded right now, my guess is it would be an under $10 stock. So Elon bought it around, what, $54? Wow. I bet you it, it already would have lost 80% uh, of its value at this point of time. And and the reason for that is, uh, you know, Elon talked about changes, you know, when it comes to free speech and uh, how, you know, the platform has to serve a broader audience. Well, none of it seems to have happened. Yes, the service is up and he has cut costs, you know, and uh, so far, uh, at least, you know, you could say the silver lining is Twitter hasn't gone down. But in terms of how Twitter operates, uh, you know, free speech wise or just, you know, what they have done in terms of the ad formats or boosting revenue, nothing. I mean, he has talked about subscriptions, but uh, it's still a work in progress. And I, I think it's going to take months before they can roll out a good subscription offering. So they've been losing ad revenue and net net, you know, there has been destruction in terms of what the business was prior to him uh, buying the company. And Paul, what Mandeep just said, kind of talking about this free speech idea yep. and talking to yep. journalists overnight, a lot of the journalists that had covered Elon Musk got their accounts suspended and then took to Twitter spaces yes. as a way around it. And then Twitter spaces got yep. suspended. Got suspended. So it's it's not trending well. And Mandeep, I, you know, as a, I started my career as a uh, corporate banker, so I do look at the balance sheet. And, you know, if I look at the FA terminal for Twitter before it was taken private, the forecast was like a ah, billion dollars of EBITDA, maybe a little bit more. Then he layers $13 billion of debt on top of that billion dollars of EBITDA. That's not good. I mean, how do you think, you know, how, how do you think the, the capital structure should be on a company like Twitter? Well, so we know he has been selling stock. And one of the things I think he would end up doing is uh, pay off some of that debt because uh, the interest expense uh, will continue to add up. And uh, my sense is he has already sold enough stock to... Uh, uh, pay off a lot of that debt. So I wouldn't be surprised if that happens a lot sooner. Hey, Dan, you know, going to these stock sales, I, I, I have not seen any reporting, so I don't know. But I do raise the question of how much of that stock was sold to, as Mandeep suggests, maybe service some of the debt, pay off the debt at Twitter versus personal margin loan accounts that may, you know, margin call that may have come from investment banks. Do we have any knowledge of that? Well, that's part of the issue. I mean, really, none's to pay off the debt so far because the problem is that the margin loan situation that becomes a spiral because the lower that Tesla stock goes, you need more collateral. And I think that that speaks to the problem here is that look, forty-four billion, it's going to go down along with Time Warner AOL as the worst tech acquisitions in the history of M&A. And I don't even think that's a question. To Mandy's point. Forty-four billion today is probably worth ten to fifteen billion. Okay, from from wow. where Twitter is, the problem goes to the more red ink Twitter has as advertisers leave. Now you you're not profitable. You have a four to five billion dollar hole every year. How do you pay for that? It's either investors or Musk, which means you have to sell more stock. 
But Dan, what does that then mean for the this margin loan swap that we were talking about, I want to say, last week, the idea of a Twitter debt, I think $13 billion of financing getting swapped out for I, I actually don't know how much in, in potential Tesla stock. And the idea here was that he would start shelling those shares and then take on the Twitter debt in a personal capacity. Now, we've seen how Tesla investors are reacting to that. Is that really going to be enough to instill some sort of confidence from bankers who are extremely exposed to this Twitter deal? I mean, that would be like, in terms of that piece, it's like the airplane's crashing and you're fo- focused on salted or unsalted peanuts if they have <laughs> <laughs> And I think that's part of the problem here. It's, it's, it, that's a small piece on the broader issue that continues to cascade. And like we saw last night, every day it doesn't get better. The twilight zone gets worse. And unfortunately, the episodes don't end because Musk continues to double down on Twitter. Mandeep, uh, 30 seconds left. Where, from an advertiser's perspective, does Twitter fit in now with this new ownership? Well, so it was always about brand advertising. And and look, it's a handful of large brand advertisers. And I wouldn't be surprised a few of them have already left. And they don't want to be seen advertising on Twitter because they don't consider it to be a brand safe platform anymore. So uh, I don't think they're getting any new advertisers right now. All right. All right, guys, I really appreciate uh, your time. Mandeep Singh, Senior Technology Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, and Dan Ives, Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. I mean, Dan was just really early, really right on the opportunities within the electric vehicle space uh, and championing Tesla. And it's tough for guys like Dan Ives and other supporters of the company and of the technology and of the product, and not to mention the shareholders who actually own the stock and, and put their money where their mouth is, to now see a lot of that value wiped out um, because of issues that are not necessarily fundamental. Yes, there's increased competition, but a lot of this has been because of Elon Musk and his deal with Twitter. Tough to take. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We've got a Federal Reserve, we've got a Bank of England, we've got a European Central Bank and others uh, all in the last uh, 48 hours raising rates, talking tough, uh, and the market's certainly uh, reacting. Chris Campbell joins us. Uh, Chief Strategist at Kroll. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So for a Friday, you get a double gold star. We appreciate that. Chris, you spent some time uh, as former Assistant Secretary from the uh, U.S. Department of Treasury, interacted with Fed Chairman Jay Powell. Uh, What do you make of our Federal Reserve uh, and its efforts over the past 48 hours? Yeah, first of all, it's great to be with you. It's great to be in the studio as well. It's uh, it's a cold morning here in New York, so yep. it's, uh, it's good to be here. But uh, like, I, I, look, I, there's no question that that Chairman Powell is de- is telegraphing as as well as central banks around the world that they that the markets must take them seriously, and they're going to do everything they can to make sure that that inflation gets under control, and they're, and they're going to stay they're going to keep on the gas as for as long as it is necessary for them to be able to to you know break break the back of inflation. Do the markets believe them? Do you think? 
clearly not. Uh, well, look, I, yeah, I, I look, I, going into going into yesterday, no, I think yes, I think uh, now I think that they're actually seeing that the the extent of what's uh, you know what may be possible, um, and I think that there is, you know, and uh, you know, but for one one mistake that that you know, the, the chairman made pretty early on uh, this year, I, I think you know, the, it's it's foolish for the markets to not take this chairman seriously. Well. Not take it seriously, but I'm wondering what they're actually pricing in here because it feels like we've been talking about recession for at least a year, year and a half, arguably. Is this just a result of the Federal Reserve's rate hikes and repricing the discount rate essentially for a lot of these companies, or is this actually pricing in a recession that may or may not hit? I think that the the markets the consensus was I think that 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 uh, you know the, the Federal Reserve was actually perhaps even going to start reducing rates next year. That is not what the chairman <laughs> indicated yesterday or the day before. And that's you know so I think the market markets had had you know just clearly were, were pricing in just incorrectly what the, what the, where the Federal Reserve is going to go. Um, and yes, I think that there is a consensus that that the recessions are, is going to hit next year sometime. Um, but I don't think anyone had had a, a clue as to kind of where, where the FOMC was was and the, where their thoughts were on just how long they're they're intending to ma- maintain this posture of tight of tight uh, of tight policy. Well, you mentioned those Fed cuts. Now you haven't spent time at the Federal Reserve, but you've spent time certainly in Washington, close by over at the Treasury. I'm curious about the playbook here because it feels like in the last I want to say at least in the last decade, the idea of cutting rates when things get tough is part of the Fed's. Um, mantra basically the playbook so if we do actually see a recession in say the second quarter of 2023 or third quarter is it the go-to to cut rates as shown by the last decade of monetary policy at least here in the united states so why is the market getting that wrong if that's what they've done in the past. Look, I, this is the way I describe it. You know, the Federal Reserve has lots of tools in their arsenal. Uh, the, uh, they're they're gonna, the biggest, they're kind of their nuclear bomb, if you will, are interest rates. But they can they can you know buy sell credit. And they can do they can do uh, you know lots of bonds. There's a lot of things they can do: quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. Won't quite have the same effect. No, that's true, right? right? So and they're they're more and, and again, it's kind of like a, a gradation of, of of what they're what they can do. Uh, but the reality is this: I I look. I, God love Fed Chairman Powell, and I'm so happy I'm not in his role right now. But I will say one thing: he is not going to be Paul Volcker, and so what will not happen? What I'm confident it will not happen under under his chairmanship is that there'll be there'll be stops and starts, and so he is going to maintain a posture, and I'm very confident he'll maintain a posture until we see a downward trajectory on inflation. He's going to maintain the posture, and like even if we have to go into recession, which I think likely is very likely, I don't think they're going to change their posture. Um, until he sees that happen, because stagflation is worse is worse than 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 what we're in currently, and I think that that would that would be the the most devastating outcome. So, is recession in your twenty twenty three outlook? And if so, how deep? How prolonged? How are you guys thinking about that? Yeah, we're we're, we're suggesting it's going to be uh, perhaps Q, uh, mid Q two, uh, beginning of Q three, and uh, twelve months. Uh, which so it, like it, it could be longer. It really is impossible to really genuinely know this. But uh, it's certainly looking like it's going to be uh, next year. I think we're going to we're going to be probably uh, going into 2024 in a recessionary environment. Well, you said that um, he's not going to be like Paul Volcker, which I think is uh, interesting. Um, that he's not going to fall to this kind of pressure. And to be fair, he hasn't yet, despite a lot of political pressure already being put on him. But I have to go back to uh, the Trump era of of tariffs and the idea that a lot of uh, the policymakers, including President Trump himself, had said. Jerome Powell, you have to cut rates. 
And then he did, not because of that pressure, but as a kind of insurance cut. Why won't we get an insurance cut this time if we start to see the same layoffs, the same recessionary pressures that we were at the, the risk of at that point? Yeah, look, we all know that, that CPI and inflationary data is, 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 uh, is, a, is a lagging indicator. And the, and the Federal Reserve has enormous amount of information at their fingertips at any given time. Uh, but there is no question, again, I, I'll just repeat myself, there's no question that this, that I don't believe this Federal Reserve is going to do anything approximating what we saw in the 1970s to, with stops and starts. Uh, certainly not certainly not reductions in, in, in infl- uh, interest until there is meaningful uh, downward trajectory on on inflation. All right. So what are you telling your clients here? Uh, you know, you're talking about here's our forecast for 2023. This is what you guys should be doing. What are you guys saying? Yeah, I, I, we expect uh, a, a continued tightening environment uh, with continuing pr- uh, interest rate increases. Um, and so it, it's, you know, like we're, we're going into a diff- very difficult environment. One thing that's that's uh, oftentimes missed is that and you, you guys know well is that 60 percent of our country live paycheck to paycheck. Um, and so with if you put that on top of, you know, like a, a tightening um, monetary monetary policy and a, 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 a slowing economy uh, and, and an increase in job uh, jobless rates, um, you know, that, that's going to make for a very meaningful and very difficult 2023 for, for retail investors for and for the average American. Um, and so and, and for companies around around the country. So right right now, uh, if you're a com- if you're a company, you, you haven't yet already gotten gotten in place where you're you know, you can withstand um, some really difficult economic times. You need to do that now. Um, and uh, for for in for investors, you know, it just it's going to be a bumpy ride in 2023 and get prepared. Well, is this Federal Reserve? Is it still behind the curve? Uh, look, I think it started late. Um, I don't know if it's beyond the curve now, but I think it's. Uh, and I think they're they're taking their jobs very seriously. But I think uh, cer- clearly they started late, so they had some they have some catch up to do. Um, and we, but we see that we see that with central banks around the world now. So and many of them are following our our, our path. Um, I will say this is that I you know I I, I don't want I wouldn't want to be in anyone's shoes around the world right now, and I wouldn't want to be a central banker in any in any country. But if I had to choose one, I would choose the United States because I think that we will weather the storm better than anyone. Why is uh, China and Europe not necessarily being taken into account in terms of the press conferences? I've been asking all of our guests this question. We know there's a more guaranteed recession in Europe right on their doorstep, might start to show up in the data as soon as next month or even this month. You have a COVID zero policy in China that is going in stops and starts. In his press conferences, Chairman Powell hasn't mentioned either one once. Very focused on domestic policy, which is great and adorable. But at the end of the day, these other global factors do factor into the American economy. Why is he not talking about them as wild cards? Well, look, I, both of them are outside of his control. Um, and both, both of them are outside not only his control, but also policymakers in the United States, right? So both on the fiscal and monetary side, these are these are external factors, as, as is Russia, um, that, you know, are just out, outside of our control. He has to, you know, and he has to, and I'm sure he is, uh, taking into account the, the existential threats that those pose to the U.S. economy, but those things that that are are in his control, I think he's obviously focused, uh, you know, quite quite candidly and quite focused on to make sure that that you know that that those things that he can can control and, and Janet Yellen and others that can control and policymakers in Washington can control, you know, the things that that uh, the levers that he has and and that they have to make sure that that uh, we keep the we keep the economy as close to. Um, and as, as going as, as, as strong as it can for as long as it can, uh, even there, even under uh, extremely difficult headwinds. Thirty seconds. How politicized is that whole 
Federal Reserve, do you think now? I know they try to remain independent, but you've been down in Washington. What's, what's your view? You know, it's an incredibly great question. I haven't actually been asked that question in a long time. I would say this. I, before I went to Treasury, I, I always had a question as if there, how independent it was while serving at Treasury Department. There is no question that there's a level of independence that actually frustrates those at Treasury. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, and, and but it needs to be that way. It's you know, there is there are so many difficult decisions that have to be made on both sides. Um, can like we, we saw, you see what, what what Washington's been doing now, which, which is spending a lot of money, yep. which is actually working ju- at, at odds with what Federal Reserve is doing, right? So, uh, you know, I so said there is there is clearly uh, a level of independence on both right. sides, and it's really difficult. All right, Chris Campbell, thanks so much for joining us, Chris Campbell's chief strategist at Crowell. Joining us here on a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Let's talk about our next guest here. There's a lot going on when it comes to a lot of these individual companies. We talk about the big tech names all the time. We have a really cool guest here who has a company called WorkSport, publicly traded on the NASDAQ, ticker WKSP. He joins us, Stephen Rossi. We thank you, as always, for joining the show on a Friday, nonetheless. Yeah. We really appreciate that. Let's start off with a very simple question. What does your company do? Explain to our audience. Uh, well, first, yeah, thanks for having me, Creedy Paul. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting. We take a very interesting approach to the automotive markets uh, here at WorkSports. So we started by making humbly producing truck accessories or um, automotive accessories. And then we took a very interesting approach uh, to the automotive accessory market by hybridizing. So now we're... Um, into new energy products, and we're the uh, the first company to launch a solar tunnel cover for pickup trucks that will create uh, microgrids out of pickup trucks or recharge electric pickup trucks, and new energy uh, storage systems, uh, battery-operated generators, for a better way of saying it. And both markets um, are, at this time, uh, literally lightning in a bottle for us. So who is your end market customer? Is it the individual? Is it the auto OEM, the, the, the stores, the, you know, the parts stores? How do you, who is your customer? Uh, it, great question. So on, so our, 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 our solar truck accessory um, is, is perfect for the OEM. Um, at this point, we have a named partnership with Hyundai, um, and we have various other discussions happening with OEMs uh, in the North American side. Um, so the accessory could be installed on an electric pickup truck and charge the truck or on a gas or diesel truck and turn that truck into a microgrid for, you know, the job site, campsite. Um, on our battery system, it broadens our market from a humble, from, from being a, humbly in the automotive markets, which is somewhat niche, to the global consumer market. Anybody, whether they drive or, or not, could use our power generator for a stormy day or, as I said, the job site or campsite. And that uh, fits perfectly direct to consumer or through mass merchandisers like Home Depot or Lowe's, for example. So let's talk about the risks here. At the end of the day, we are financial journalists, which means we like to look at things glass half empty. (laughs) It's part of the job description. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about the risks here. You know, we hear a lot of doom and gloom out there about recession right on the horizon, a really tough 2023 after an already pretty tough 2022 in the markets. What's your take? Are you worried about next year? Um, in the new energy markets, uh, it's among one of the fastest growing markets in the world, um, recession um, usually starts at the at the niceties, uh, the, the, the 
the, the things that people don't necessarily need. Um, and then it, it trickles down, depending on how long, as you guys know, to things that, uh, you know, perhaps people do need essentials. But um, new energy products like backup power systems for that stormy day are something more of an, an essential element. So that category is growing. We've found some very interesting market data uh, that's that's opened our eyes that this market's 10 times larger than we had even anticipated by literal dollar cents. On the on the truck side, on the on the consumer uh, pickup truck sales side, pickup trucks are really recession proof. And I'll, I'll explain. First off, the nameplates are almost the, the, the domestics are no longer producing sedans, as you know, um, and leaning very heavily into pickup trucks. And it seems that the the trend would be that in good times, good economic times, people buy pickup trucks. In tougher economic times, where people have to get out and maybe do a little bit more work. People are still buying pickup trucks. So we find that we are in an enviable position in terms of the markets, um, but with, uh, with the recession, with you know, the, the economic times as they are coming out of COVID, um, you know, we, we, we are noticing supply chain issues, delays, price increases, uh, but there are silver linings there I could talk about. So on the electric vehicle front, I mean, obviously it's, it, it had been Tesla's market, then we had Rivian and but now we've got all of the OEMs seemingly coming in gangbusters on electric vehicles. How do you guys kind of think about the growth trajectory uh, of that business? The, the OEMs are all very heavily focused on uh, electric pickup trucks, um, almost predominantly focused on it. In fact, in some of our meetings in Detroit in the past weeks, um, you know, the words were literally, uh, we are putting almost everything we have into electrifying pickup trucks on a small scale, like the little trucks, uh, like Hyundai has a Santa Cruz that's more of a of, of a of a of a car with a or an SUV with a pickup bed. Um, but the 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 OEMs on the electric pickup truck, it's kind of a race. Um, we've had uh, an amazing amount of interest, and the reason why a a, a solar tonneau cover for that truck uh, kind of makes sense is just because we, you're now changing from something that used to be the, 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 the big producer of carbon emissions to some, a step towards carbon neutrality. But as I've always said is, are we merely exchanging the emissions from the tailpipe of a gas-fed uh, pickup truck to the emissions of a natural gas or coal-powered smokestack? So with the push towards ESG, a solar tunnel cover, I mean, the statistics are amazing. Uh, we produce 948 kilowatt hours uh, per year. Uh, we reduce with 100,000 units of sil uh, that we sell, 100,000 solar tunnel covers, which pickup trucks sell in the millions. Uh, we are estimated to increase up to 95,000 megawatt hours, which reduces about 1.3 billion miles of vehicle emissions every year in exchange for clean energy that could, again, recharge the pickup truck, electric pickup truck, or store energy in gas pickup trucks to be used for job site cancel. So it's very meaningful. Well, a lot of the technology is coming out from abroad. China, I believe, is the leader in electrification, even as we have the likes of Tesla, Ford, GM, these other companies that are really trying to advance the EV work here in the States. But it is still China that seems to be the center of it globally. Are you in active competition with, with Chinese companies? What's your relationship like uh, with our uh, Asian counterparts? We, we are. So uh, there, there is a big push recently we've noticed from multiple businesses that we're just colleagues with 
um, in insourcing or domestication of, um, of production. Um, so China is very strong on power electronics, very strong on um, battery production, but also very much so um, uh, changing their laws, rules, and regulations to eliminate the, uh, the, 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 the ability for these factories to produce um, kind of almost with no real controls on emissions and, and, and carb, you know, uh, almost kind of smoggy plants, uh, for lack of a better uh, way of saying it. So with, uh, with the battery technology and, PC and automation in North America, um, production in North America of batteries, although a little further out, uh, is very, very possible and very exciting for the future in the next, let's call it two to five years. Uh, and in terms of power electronics, like like right. like circuit boards and whatnot, it's it's very very. Uh, so we 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 can compete. Yes. All right, Steve. Great stuff. Really appreciate you taking the time to bring us up to date on what you guys are doing at Worksport. Steve Rossi, CEO of Worksport, uh, Nasdaq traded uh, company. WKSP is the ticker to put into your Bloomberg terminal. They make those covers for the beds of the pickup trucks, and now they make them. They can be like solar panels to power the pickup trucks and other stuff. Pretty cool technology. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. All right, we are smack dab in the middle of the Hollywood shopping season. We got a U.S. retail sales print a couple of days ago that was uh, missed estimates, calling into question maybe the strength of the consumer. So when we want to talk about the consumer, we want to talk about retail. We want to talk about shopping. The name at the top of the list, Dana Telsley, Chief Research Officer and CEO of Telsley Advisory Group. She's been doing this stuff for decades. Hey, Dana, we got that retail sales print a couple of days ago, a little bit weaker than or much weaker than expected. What, what was your takeaway from that? It was a week. It was a week. First of all, Paul, thank you for having me. It was a weaker than expected number. Keep in mind that we know that the beginning of November was soft. Every retailer talked about it. You had a pull forward of demand that went into October a little bit compared to what you had in November. And with you having an extra Saturday in, in the shopping calendar this year, given that Christmas is on a Sunday, consumers are waiting. Last year, retailers didn't have enough inventory, and consumers knew that. They bought, they were flush with cash. And they bought at full price. This year, retailers have more than enough inventory. The promotions can continue to build until we get to the 25th and even afterwards. So consumers don't feel the same sense of urgency, especially when promotions have been going on for a while now. Dana, there's been this dynamic uh, in the market, at least in the narrative here, that as we start to see inflation numbers increase, headline CPI even, the spending ability of everyday Americans will erode, and we haven't actually seen that yet. I'm wondering in 2023, as we see these inflation numbers come down, will that actually mean that spending is going to rise? Is it as simple as that? I think overall, when we think about the income consumer, you got a bifurcation of the consumer going on. You definitely have the lower and mid middle income consumers 
shifting their spend to grocery and essentials from discretionary. Inflation coming down would be a benefit for them. We know that the labor market has been strong, and frankly, wages are higher than they were even just a couple years ago. So if they want a job, they can get a job. I would hope as inflation comes down, it would be a boost to demand. Hey, Dana, as we sit here on December 16th, and I know you and your team, you're out at the malls all the time. You've got uh, your fingers on the pulses of this retail economy. How do you think this is going to play out this year vis-a-vis last year or maybe you know more normalized year? First of all, I think one of the things we're seeing is there is a lull. We are in the lull. You can see in the lull. Tomorrow's supposed to be the Super Saturday. We'll be out there seeing if all the shoppers are, are out there. I think one of the big differences is we don't have the scare of Omicron and COVID that you had last year. So I don't know about you, but it seems like people going out for dinner, occasions, there's holiday celebrations that are happening. And part of those dollars, discretionary dollars, is going to event spending. And we're seeing that. So is the spend going to be gifts that are events and social occasions more than just gifts overall? certainly seems that way in some instances, along with the travel pickup. Here in Manhattan, where I think you are and I am, we definitely are seeing more tourists. Hotel rooms are crazily priced. And overall, um, the holiday season, I think, is going to turn out okay, not a barn burner. I think the winner of the holiday season is whose inventory levels are clean. And I think inventory levels will see an acceleration of promotion if they need to be moved. But doesn't that kind of increased spending require some sort of turnaround in consumer sentiment? It is still so striking to me that if you look at the data, consumer sentiment is still extremely low, but isn't actually denting to the same extent the spending ability. What happens when that turns around? I think when the sentiment picks up and you see labor being being stronger, well, then it's going to lead to demand and potentially go back towards some of the discretionary products instead of towards grocery where it's shifting now. Keep in mind, consumers definitely are feeling fatigue. There's been multiple years of the pandemic. There's financial stress. And also one of the things that consumers are looking to do, do things conveniently. Why do you think retail stores today fill so many more functions than they did in the past? Buy online, pick up in store, ship from store, go to store. How do you have that convenience and seamlessness in order to help consumers have more time on how they want to spend it and how they want to use it? So, Dana, what are people buying this season? What are some of the the hot areas that that you're seeing? I think some of the occasion wear is still working. I mean, you're seeing things like whether it is social occasion wear, like dresses and items like that, that's good, doing well. Luggage, all of a sudden luggage is picking (laughs) up, and that goes to show the travel that's out there. I think some some of the high-end on luxury goods, those consumers continue to have Uh, The ability to spend and the innovative product of some of the luxury brands is working for them. I think one of the categories that's been a bit softer, toys. We just haven't seen the toy pickup that we've seen in the past. Luggage. Interesting. Because traveling? Am I traveling? I I wish I was traveling. (laughs) Trust me, I wish I was traveling. Um, I actually recently found out that I am actually working or had the option to take the last week of the year off and I didn't and I really regret it but um next year year, absolutely but luggage Paul I mean I'm still using my uh $50 suitcase my dad got me first year of college you need to to upgrade your professional hey Dana talk to us about the 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 big trend that's been you know impacting your industry over the last decade which is just kind of e-commerce and I know we probably pulled a lot of e-commerce market share 
forward during the pandemic. What are you telling your clients today about bricks and mortar versus e-commerce? I don't think it's a versus. I think it's an end. Okay. I don't think it's either or. I think it's a both. And I think one of the things we've all seen is you're seeing companies, number one, they've enhanced loyalty programs. Companies have put in more functionality. One of the things you learned during the pandemic, retailers got rid of boxes that were unproductive and not profitable. They're sitting here with the best boxes out there with the omni-channel initiatives of, like I mentioned, the buy online, the pick up in store, ship from store. There is multiple use functions. And if anything, what came out of the pandemic, retail not only has a right to live, retail is wanted by the retailers, by the consumers, and also by the enhancements it makes to operating a business. And don't forget the personalization it gives. It helps retailers be smarter about who their customers are, what their customers want to buy, and also they've put in store environments that make it say a wow. I think there's an energy to shopping that's coming out of some of these retail environments that we haven't seen in a while. And you're seeing it in pop-up shops, and you're seeing it in full-price stores, too. Well, I, I find it interesting that you say it's a e-commerce and brick-and-mortar story, because for me, I almost feel like brick-and-mortar is coming back into vogue because you can try things on. You can see the product in person um, more so than I feel like we haven't really been able to do uh, the past two years. Do you see some sort of um, almost pull away from e-commerce because of the hassle of return shipping, for example, or some of these new retailers adding restocking fees when it comes to returns? There could be some of that. I think there's also just people have been so cooped up for so long, they want to get out. And I think they're getting out on their terms and their choice. One of the things that we've seen is that when you think about Black Friday weekend, stores don't need to be open 24 hours a day. And there is definitely more there's not the same rush in the beginning of the day because you didn't have the doorbusters that you had in years past. So consumers are shopping when they want to shop and when it's convenient. Retailers are able to schedule their sales associates at some of those more productive times. And I think there's just an energy and excitement that's back in physical retail that we haven't had in years. Dana, Leslie, um, you know, you've told us in the past and others have that you know, for a long time, the retail space in this country, the retail footprint was overstored. Over, there's too many stores. Where are we in, in kind of right-sizing that? Big, we've, come, we've right-sized it a ton, given all the closures that happened during the pandemic. As a matter of fact, one of the things we've seen is the watch list on retailers of concern, it's been steady. We haven't seen an uptick. The same retailers that we've heard about of concern, whether it's Bed Bath, whether it's Belks, whether it's Cons, whether it's Party City – and Tuesday morning, those are the same retailers that were of concern a year or two years ago. I don't have new names added to the list, and that's a good sign. All right, Dana Telsey, thank you so much uh, for your time. We know this time of year is particularly busy for you and your team. Dana Telsey, Chief Research Officer uh, with Telsey Advisory Group. And, folks, literally, she is the top retail analyst on Wall Street, has been for a long time. All right, let's switch gears. I'm going to talk about steelmakers. Um, really interesting. First of all, I love the steel industry. Nothing says middle America and industrial might like uh, steel. But Nucor, the largest U.S. steelmaker, warned shareholders that recession concerns could impact demand as it looks ahead into the new year. So let's get the latest on that. Richard Bork, he's a senior analyst at, with Basic Materials uh, with Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here. So, so Rich, what are we hearing from Nucor and, and how are investors reacting? Well, I think if you kind of take a step back, um, steel stocks have performed really well this year, especially yeah. if conservative price of steel is down 60%. Uh, 
So with recession talk heating up and, and certainly concerning that, um, I wouldn't be surprised if investors are starting to take money off the table here. But really, the demand uncertainty is really more a long-term issue because in the short term, we have a very favorable setup. Um, entering December, all the mills announced a $60 a ton price increase, which seems to be sticking. And Cleveland Cliffs this week announced a second increase. Also, a main um, service centers, which are one of their main customers, have announced raising prices also. So, so we're seeing price outlook a little more favorable after a 60% decline um, had, you know, this year. Also, historically, we're heading into a seasonally stronger period as customers start to stock up ahead of a construction season. And in contrast to times in the past, there's been good dis- good supply discipline through the value chain as demand slowed in the second half of 2022. Mills cut back on production by extending maintenance outages and idling assets. Service centers reduced inventory into year-end. Um, in fact, Manufacturers cut back. Um, customers indicate that lead times are extending and mills are less willing to no- negotiate on prices and they want their increases. Imports are down. Um, U.S. prices are actually less than in- import prices, so we shouldn't have any pressure from imports you know, in the near term. So all in all, this sets up to, mm. for a good start to the year. But everybody's concerned longer term if there's recession going to be on the table. Yeah. So, Rich, give us a sense of just today in the, in our country, how much of our steel is sourced domestically versus imported, and maybe how how's that changed over time? Um, so, basically, if you look at the industry, and these are just kind of rough terms, um, the U.S. steel industry, require, consumers require a little over 100 million tons of steel a year, and normally the U.S., the um, can supply about 80 million. So we do need imports for another, you know, 20% or so. So this has kind of bounced around the 20% over the last few years. But what's happened is Section 232 gave, um, and all, you know, you've seen new core steel dynamics, um, U.S. steel, all of them have kind of said, you know, with Section 232 protection, is maybe we can permanently displace imports by building new mills. So they've all kind of embarked on construction of various new mills over the last few years, and with the thought that that, that once 232 tariffs expire, um, you know, these mil- new mills will permanently displace the imports that have in the past. So we should see imports trend down in the future, and, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, we've seen that U.S. actually um, domestic prices, you know, are actually cheaper to import steel when you account for kind of travel, you know, the freight costs and everything to get over to the U.S. All right. Good stuff. We don't talk about steel enough, and that's the backbone of a lot of stuff that gets built. We're going to have to have Richard back on. Yeah. Richard Bork, he's a senior analyst. He covers the basic materials. Nothing's more basic uh, than steel. He does that for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us via phone. And Nucor, uh, which, you know, I was looking at Nucor. It's got a $35 billion market cap. And then I look at, you know, U.S. Steel. 
and I thought that was always the biggest steel maker, uh, but it's not. It's one of the smaller ones now. It's got a market cap of $5.8 billion. So the, the, the market share, the dynamics of the U.S. steel business has, has really changed over the last couple of decades. Uh, but Nucor, again, the biggest one's calling out some recession concerns and how that might impact uh, their business in 2023. So we thought we'd get rich on to kind of get a lay of the land and all things steel. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.